Hello, this is another edition of Oxford Cyber Podcast. The podcast was recorded on the 12th of June 2017. Good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, we are Dr. Branch of the Science Association, and in collaboration with Diabetes UK, it's like Professor Vigan there, uh, we organized this special event for Diabetes Week, that is this week. So um, today we have to talk about, uh, we have Professor Anna Gloin <laughs> to talk about diabetes, and in particular diabetes, uh, the type 2 diabetes. Uh, so I will read this super massive, <laughs> super interesting along um, biography, but I will be fast. So essentially, she's a professor of molecular genetics and metabolism, and, and a well-contrast senior fellow in basic medical sciences based in Jonkley, in the Oxford Center for Diabetes, Endocrinology and Metabolism, and the well-contrast center for human genetics at the University of Oxford. <laughs> Her research is focused on understanding how the changes in our DNA influences whether or not we, di- uh, we develop diabetes, the type 2 diabetes. And if, that, if you don't know what is uh, the type 2 diabetes, she will explain it soon, because I cannot remember any more <laughs> the details back in the day when I started it. Um, and essentially, she's looking at uh, understanding what are the important processes that control blood levels in our, I mean, blood levels in our bodies. And of course, these processes can be targeted for some specific so diabetes. Um, in particular, she's interested in tailoring down treatments to specific subgroup of people. And during the early postdoctoral research, she found one of the first examples of precision medicine that I don't know if you ever know, but essentially is how to give the right drug to the right patient. That is something really cool that is happening now in medicine. And she found that a rare type, subtype of diabetes that developed in babies can be treated with oral tra- tablets rather than insulin injection. I would, say, I would say that a lot of babies would be happy because injections are horrible. Uh, so she did her PhD here in Oxford, and then she worked as a postdoc in Exeter and then at the University of Pennsylvania Philadelphia in the USA. And she came back in Oxford in 2004 to establish her own group. And today, she will talk about diabetes, the type 2 diabetes, a global crisis that gets hurt now. So, Please help me welcome Professor Anna Glow. Let's go. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. No, you did very well. You did very well. It's a tricky surname. Thank you very much. And thank you for the invitation and opportunity to join you this evening for this special uh, cyber because this is Diabetes Awareness Week. Uh, so I'm here with Diabetes UK, hoping to uh, encourage you all to know about your risk of diabetes and to know diabetes and to fight diabetes. And I'm not here alone. I'd like to just uh, have a little cheer for my uh, team over there in the corner, my research group, that come along to to support me. And particularly to Antia, who's uh, responsible for many of the uh, items which we will get to uh, that are on the tables this evening. So hopefully we're going to have a little bit of fun. We've got some quizzes. We've got some... uh, Uh, things for you to look at and I hope at the end of the session that you're going to leave here knowing a little bit more about type 2 diabetes and also a little bit more about the research that myself and my team are doing where we're trying to understand what causes it and to improve the way that we can uh, treat it. So you'll have noticed that the title of my talk was A Global Crisis Gets Personal. So I thought it would be worth off starting by telling you a little bit about why I think it's uh, a global crisis. So does anyone in the room have any idea about how many people in the world have uh, type 2 diabetes? You guys know answering the question, because if you get it wrong, I'll be very cross. Uh, Anyone have a clue about how many people have diabetes? 
Sorry? Billion. Billion? Bit lower? About 30%. So 415 million people at the moment have diabetes worldwide. It means that every six seconds, somebody dies from diabetes or one of its complications. One in seven births in the world at the moment are affected by gestational diabetes. And it's estimated that by 2040, over 640 million people will have diabetes. So this is a global crisis and one that is getting worse. In the UK, does anyone have an idea about how much money we spend treating diabetes and its complications on a yearly basis? 25 billion. That's how much it costs the NHS to treat diabetes and the complications that come from diabetes. What do we think diabetes might cause in people who have it? What are the complications that I'm talking about? Amputations. Yeah, it's the major cause, major single cause of amputations at the moment, diabetes. Anything else? That Loss, of Loss of eyesight. Loss of eyesight, absolutely. Some blindness, yes. Anything Kidney else? Failure. Kidney failure, yeah. Anything else? Yes, absolutely. And also major cause of non-alcoholic uh, liver fatty, fatty liver disease. So it affects many organs in your body. It has huge impacts on people's quality of life and their duration of life. So it's something that we need to get our heads around and we need to deal with it because it's a situation that is getting worse. So that's why I have uh, called it a, a global crisis. So what is this global crisis? And... Uh, what can we do to prevent it? So today I'm going to focus on type 2 diabetes, not type 1 diabetes. Type 1 is a type of diabetes that's an autoimmune disease. So that's when your body attacks uh, the cells that make insulin um, and uh, destroys them. So that's usually what children get. That's the kind of childhood diabetes. I'm going to focus my talk on type 2 diabetes because that's the variety of diabetes that I uh, personally uh, work on. So diabetes happens when our bodies are uh, not able to regulate uh, the sugar levels in our blood. So all of you here are, are drinking or eating and while you're doing that your bodies are very uh, working very hard to try and maintain your glucose levels, your blood sugar levels in an acceptable range. Um, that's not straightforward. That requires a lot of uh, components of your body to work very uh, carefully together so that you can keep your blood glucose somewhere between five and seven millimoles per liter. So for somebody to have diabetes, what happens is that fails. Your body is unable to control the sugar in your uh, blood glucose, uh, in your blood levels after you've had something to eat or drink. And it goes from being between five and seven to being about 11 millimoles per liter. So uh, on your table, here's your first challenge. You'll find some little falcon tubes that Antia has put together with you. For you and you'll see some red liquid in them. Now, panic knock, this is not blood, this is artificially created in the lab, faux blood, okay? And you've got two varieties. One variety is uh, around the blood glucose level that uh, we would have in this room as long as we don't have diabetes. And the other one has got high sugar levels in it. So I want you just to have a go at doing this with the tubes and have a look at the liquid inside them. What do you notice? The viscosity. Yes. So if you had that going around your body, the thick and gloopy one, what do you think that might be doing to your cells and to your blood vessels and to your organs? 
Imagine that going into the tiny vessels at the back of your eye, or the little vessels in your kidney. Sorry? Yeah, it's, 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 making a, it's making a lot of uh, damage. It's going to block them up. So it's going to block the vessels up in your eyes so that you won't be able to see. It's going to damage your vessels in your kidneys. And it's also going to uh, prevent you from being able to get rid of that energy in your uh, blood and to, uh, and to dispose of it safely in tissues in your body. And because of that, you'll have high amounts of fat also going around in your uh, body. And that will mean that you have uh, increased risk of having uh, heart problems that somebody else mentioned earlier. So, do you, anybody in the room know what would happen if you have high uh, sugar levels in your blood? What do you think it would make you feel? Thirsty. Yeah, thirsty. What else? Yeah. You want to pee a lot, you want to drink a lot, and you might be rather tired. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what else can happen when you've got diabetes? And you can also lose weight. So those are the symptoms. So if you have those symptoms and then you check your blood glucose and you find out that it is in the undesirable range, then that would be an indication that you ought to uh, see your GP and uh, uh, get your blood glucose levels checked. So that's what happens when it doesn't work out. What do we normally do to regulate our blood glucose levels? So I've had a lot of fun over the weekend because I've been monitoring my glucose levels to find out what happens when I eat and drink. So at the moment I've got a little sensor here on my arm which has got a little needle in it that's uh, going into my uh, blood and I can rub, run this over the top of the sensor and I can get a reading for what my blood glucose level is. So at the moment I'm running at 5.7, so I'm quite happy about that. But I can tell you something, when I put this over my arm over the weekend after eating melon, it went pretty high, I went up to nine after minutes after having some fruit. So that shows you the kind of variation that you can get that is, is quite normal, quite acceptable, and how our uh, blood glucose um, changes as we eat and drink. Now, this is really good because it gives me an indication of what's happening in my body. But my body needs to be able to pick up what my blood glucose is and do something about it. So if you think about your bodies at the moment, you have your stomachs here, and behind your stomach there's an organ called the pancreas. And in that pancreas, you have some special cells, just like Boris here, who I'm just going to introduce you to. This is Boris the beta cell. And Boris is able to detect my glucose level, just like this glucose meter. And when I have my melon, and my blood glucose goes up, Boris senses that, and he thinks, right, I need to spring into action. I need to do something about this. And what Boris does is he releases a hormone called insulin. And this insulin is then able to circulate around my body and to go to the different cell types where insulin works and to get rid of that uh, sugar that's come from the melon or from something else I've eaten. So it might go to my liver, and get my liver to take some of that sugar up and store it safely within the liver as glycogen. It might go to a fat cell and encourage the fat cell to safely store the glucose as triglycerides within the fat cell. Or it might go to the muscle and get the muscle to use it as fuel. So you can see here that this is a pretty important uh, hormone that we have within our bodies that comes out of the beta cells that are in the pancreas behind our stomachs uh, and it's released after a meal. So 
for diabetes, what goes wrong with this process so that we end up not being able to get this normal coordination between Boris and Boris's friends? Well, there are a number of things that happen. Basically, Boris can be broken and Boris is unable to let the insulin out and the insulin is unable to go and talk with its friends. Or the friends don't want to talk and play with Boris anymore and they go away and they ignore him and they're resistant to him. Now, that's essentially what happens in type 2 diabetes, but it doesn't tell us what causes it and why Boris falls out with his friends. And some of the major reasons for why that happens are to do with uh, nurture, to do with our environment. Now, one of the biggest changes since the 1980s in terms of our environment has been our lifestyle. Can anybody sort of give me some ideas? What do you think's changed dramatically since 1980? Diet. Yeah. Diet. Yeah. Diet. What else? Exercise. Like the internet, you're going to get everything ordered. You can yeah. Get, you basically become more lazy, sedentary lifestyle. So yeah. so you're doing nothing, ordering your groceries from. Sanctuary. You just described my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, a, a quick way. How many of you this evening walked to come here? Oh, you are good. Who was on the bike? And who came in their car? <laughs> who uh, does their shopping, grocery shopping on the internet? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we're not the typical uh, audience here this evening, but if you think about uh, uh, us as, as Oxfordshire rather than just those of us that are in the room today, our lifestyles have changed, right? We don't necessarily exercise as much. As you say, the internet, we can do everything with our iPads. I know that my daughter spends a huge amount of time on the internet. In fact, she'll build her own reality in Minecraft rather than play in the garden. There are lots of things that have changed from my childhood in the 1980s. Think also about uh, our uh, average body size. So if you think at the moment, women in the room in particular, if we think about what size clothing we wear, we know what size we are, but if we went back to the 1950s or the 1960s and we picked up the same size we are today, I bet you it wouldn't fit you. Because society has just moved what a size 10 used to be back because nobody wants to buy that anymore because they are bigger. Blokes in the room, think about your inside leg and think about your um, waist circumference. So your inside leg's not going to change but I bet you're noticing that uh, your waist circumference changes. As a society, we are getting bigger. We are putting on weight and we don't exercise. And that is the major driver in the UK, in North America, and globally of type two diabetes. So what we're gonna do now is if you have a look on your tables, you will find a little quiz that Auntie has put together for you. We want to challenge you to see how well you understand how much sugar is in the foods that you might choose to eat. But we also want to see how much you know about the various activities that you would need to do to burn off or use that sugar in the food. So I'd like you to spend a bit of time now looking at this, thinking it through. There's a couple on there that are a bit tricky, so do take your time. And please feel free to use your special Optem Love Research diabetes pens. <laughs>
sugar and many of you will have uh, noticed in the press at the moment that there's a lot of interest around the sugar tax, particularly thinking about it in terms of our uh, children. So clearly lifestyle choices, what we eat, whether we exercise, very important for uh, our uh, risk of uh, developing type 2 diabetes and that's very much the nurture side of uh, the equation. But the part that I devote most of my time and effort is understanding nature, so understanding the genetic component uh, to our risk of developing type 2 diabetes. 
Now, we know that it exists because if we study twins, people who have identical copies of their DNA and all their genes, if one of them gets diabetes, then the chance of the other twin getting diabetes is about three, uh, three times out of every four. So they're clearly at an increased risk of uh, getting diabetes, so there is a genetic <coughs> component. So I'm interested in understanding this genetic component because I think it holds a lot of clues as to how we might understand the disease better and that greater understanding will lead to an ability to uh, discover new ways of treating and preventing diabetes because we're clearly not very good at it at the moment. I've given you the stats. I've told you that uh, the number of people globally is increasing. So no matter what we do with trying to stop uh, people drinking Coca-Cola, eating pizza, uh, eating uh, the wrong types of food and, uh, and not exercising, that's not working. So we need other tools in our toolbox to be able to uh, prevent this global crisis. So uh, when I say that your genes are involved, what do I uh, mean by that? Uh, well, I mean that in all of our cells, we have an instruction manual that allows us to make all of the machinery that makes us us. And changes in the uh, way that that instruction book is written uh, create differences in us. So if you think about human height, we're not all the same height. We inherit uh, how, like, how tall we're likely to be based on our uh, parents. So if I get my dad, it's embarrassing now to stand up, this is my dad over here. So I, my height is the sum of my mum and dad's height. So I better stand up straight. <laughs> so do you inherit a tall or a short? My grandma was tall, my mum wasn't, but I am based on, uh, my height is based on my mum and my dad's um, uh, genetics and also the fact that they fed me very well as a kid, so I grew very well, so a little bit of environment in there. Let's also think about weight, think about your BMI. We're all different sizes and we're a continuum. And part of uh, our weight is determined by our genes. So there are variants in uh, the DNA sequence inside our cells that might make us more likely to put on weight than the person that uh, we're sat next to. So diabetes runs in families. Uh, there are uh, changes in our DNA sequence that uh, influence whether or not we will get it. Now I've got a few DNA facts for you. So our human genome is made up of 3.2 billion uh, letters. And if we were to commit that to paper, it would make a staggering 200 copies of a 500-page yellow pages or phone directory. So imagine that. That's one big book. And that is all the information that is required to make you, me, my mum, my dad, my, uh, my children, our friends. That's how much information is needed. If we were really bored and couldn't think of anything else to do with our lives and we decided that we would recite the human genome. It would uh, take us um, saying one letter every second for 24 hours a day. It would take us over a century to get through the entire human genome. So I think we've got better things to do than that. For those of you who like to think about, let's write it all out and see how far it goes. So if we were to take the, the code, the sequence that's inside all of us, and see how far it went, 
It would extend 3,000 kilometres. And for my dad and others in the room, that's 1.8,000 uh, 1 uh, miles. So that's quite some sequence. And there are little changes in it between each of us that, as I say, make us who we are. They alter our hair colour, our eye colour, how tall we are, how uh, much fat we put on our bottoms or on our uh, middles, and how, much li uh, how likely we are to develop uh, type 2 diabetes. And what's really remarkable is that over the last uh, 10, 20 years, technology has made it possible for us to completely read that 3.2 billion letter document in people's cells and to actually identify differences between people who have diabetes and those that don't. So sometimes these will be differences that we can say are the reason somebody has diabetes, they are causal, it's just that one change, that one spelling mistake in the uh, instruction manual. Other times it'll be lots of subtle changes. And I like to think about this as the way that we spell words uh, between here in the UK and our friends in North America. Some of you will think about the colour and the fact that they don't like to put a U in it. We know that that says colour when they don't put the U in it, but we prefer it in the UK with the U in it. So same meaning, but slightly different presentation. And that's what a lot of the variation in our genome is about. It doesn't change things, it's just a different way of getting across um, the information that our body needs to uh, manufacture the different components of it. So, if we were to work out what those different changes were in the sequence, uh, people who had diabetes compared to those that didn't, we might be able to identify why Boris beta cell is unable to produce enough insulin. And the beautiful thing about genetics is that we can now do it in a hypothesis-free manner. So we can go and look across the genome without having to understand what any of these cells do. And we can say, okay, where are those differences? And they may be in bits that we don't understand, but we can get there through the human genetics. Now, it may be that they tell us that Boris is unable to see glucose. Maybe he's totally blind to it. Maybe his nucleus, his little instruction manual, is unable to make proteins effectively, and therefore he can't make Mr. Insulin to come out. Or maybe he can't uh, release insulin because his zip's broken. And human genetics can actually help us identify what those problems are. And if we know what the problems are, we can start to think about how we could correct them. And genetics might actually show us novel ways that we can't imagine at the moment. And also, because we know that they are responsible for the disease, we can be really uh, hopeful that actually targeting them will have um, uh, a, a, a good effect. So, at the moment, anybody in the room know how we treat diabetes? Type 2? Sorry? Medication. Yeah, medication. So we can either treat it with a tablet... And those tablets might uh, make uh, Boris beta cell uh, release insulin. They might make some of Boris's friends be more friendly to him. They might make him then more receptive to his insulin gift. Or if that doesn't work, we can actually uh, get hold of uh, the insulin that Boris normally makes and we can inject that into uh, the person with diabetes. That's how we currently do it. And none of those treatments actually cure the diabetes. They're just a way of changing the blood glucose level. They don't modify the disease. So they're not a great treatment. They're the best we have at the moment, but it would be really desirable to have new ways to, to treat it. So I want to...
to now convince you that genetics can tell us uh, something about uh, how the beta cell works. So when Christiana was introducing me at the beginning, she mentioned that I'd worked as a postdoc on uh, a rare form of diabetes that uh, babies are, are born with. And this is a, 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 a genetic disorder where they have one spelling mistake in their 32 billion letters that means that their beta cells are unable to uh, release insulin. They're, if you like, their zip is faulty. And it means these children are born and they're very small. Uh, their mums and dads have to give them insulin injections to try and uh, um, cure their diabetes. When we uh, identified the spelling mistake in the uh, uh, DNA of these children, we were able to realise that we could open their zips on their beta cells and release their insulin by using a, a tablet that actually worked by opening this uh, channel. And that was, as you can imagine, uh, a big deal because you didn't have to give these children insulin injections anymore. You could just give them a tablet. So that shows you that human genetics can identify uh, really uh, safe and effective drug targets. And if we could do that for people with type 2 diabetes, there's the chance that we may be able to improve uh, their quality of life. So I want to finish up by talking about precision medicine. So the last part of the title of my talk was A Global Crisis Gets Personal. And this brings me on to uh, the final point about where I think human genetics might be able to help. And that's with an ability to tailor our treatments to an individual or to a group of individuals. So to try and explain this, I want to ask people what they're drinking this evening in the bar. How many of you in here have got a pint of lager or beer? Okay. How many of you have got a diet drink? Yeah. How many of you are not drinking at all because you don't like how you feel after you've had a drink? You're not going to admit to that. Oh, yes, you are. Thank you. Okay. All right. So the reason I've asked you to think about what you're drinking is because we all have different reactions to alcohol. So some of us in the room, uh, we may flush when we have a drink, and that can be because our genes um, mean that we have a mutation in one of the enzymes that helps us metabolize or break down alcohol. Some of us are men, some of us are women. That means that we can tolerate different amounts of alcohol. That's why we have different safe limits for uh, men and women. We're different body sizes, right? And some of us can't drink as much without getting tiddly. And that's because our bodies are smaller. We can't uh, cope with as much alcohol. And drugs are very similar. So when we uh, prescribe drugs to uh, people with a particular condition, we need to think about their gender. We need to think about their BMI. And we need to think about their genetics. What if they have defects or differences in the way that their livers work that mean they metabolize the drug, break it down differently, it might not work as well. And human genetics here in diabetes also offers us a chance to identify those changes that mean that somebody might respond better or equally worse to a particular treatment. And then it might get to the point where you can go in to see your GP and he'll do a lookup of your genetic sequence, your 3.2 billion uh, letters, and he might be able to say, right, well, you're, uh, you're female, uh, you're a little bit overweight, and um, actually I've just had a look at your genotype, and I don't think this is going to be a very good treatment for you. You are unlikely to be one of the people who have the most benefit from it. So I'm not going to waste time putting you onto that treatment. I am instead going to give you this particular variety of treatment because 
the uh, odds are that this is going to be a much more uh, beneficial treatment for you. And I actually think that if you look across the examples from the rare forms of diabetes, we see evidence that human genetics can point us to precision medicine. And if you think across other diseases, such as cancer, we already know that genetics is playing a role in influencing the choice of drug that your oncologist might put you on. So that's why I think that we can make uh, diabetes personal using human genetics. Now, finally, I just want to ask you in the room, how many people do you think have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes globally whilst I've been talking? So. While I've been talking, has it felt that long? Ten? <laughs> Ten? Thirty. Hundred thousand. Ten? You think ten in the last... I've been talking for 40 minutes, so in the world at this moment, how many? We've got ten here, we had... Some of you said an awful lot because you thought you... 35. 35, interesting. Any more takers? 500. 500. I reckon about 20. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but that, no, but that's still 20 people in 40 minutes diagnosed. And I told you at the beginning how many people have died. So think about that. You've been sat here, we've had 40 minutes together where we've had a little bit of fun, hopefully, winning beta cells. You've thought about how your human genetics might influence your risk of developing diabetes and how it might also hold the promise of uh, unlocking uh, new insights into how to be treated. But during that 40 minutes, we've had people diagnosed with diabetes and we've had people who have died from the complications of diabetes. And that is why this week, Diabetes UK are so keen that we get the message out there that people need to know about diabetes and they need to fight diabetes because this is not going away. This is only going to get worse. Thank you very much. the world is undiagnosed. People don't know they have it. Mm -hmm. So just because you haven't got a family history doesn't mean to say that you perhaps have a family member who is undiagnosed. And the thing that I was going to uh, point you to is that on the Diabetes UK website, for anybody who's interested or concerned, there's a risk calculator. It's a set of simple questions that you can put in asking you some uh, fairly straightforward questions, you know, your age, your gender, your BMI, and your waist circumference. Uh, whether or not somebody in your family has been diagnosed with diabetes, whether or not you've ever uh, been uh, put on any medication for high blood pressure. And it will give you your risk of developing diabetes because these are some of the other factors along with your family history that you should take into account. Um, so it's quite, you know, it's quite good to keep an eye on those things that we know influence your risk. Is it, is it primarily that, uh, nature or so are you uh, okay so what what's the driving factor are you asking rather which is the most important well, well, there are lots of yes 
Yeah. On, on average. Okay. So the way I would look at that is that if we were to um, look at the rise in type 2 diabetes across the globe in the last 40 years, I would say, well, our genes haven't changed within that 40 years, but what has changed is obesity, uh, BMI increase, and sedentary lifestyle. So clearly, at the moment, the biggest driver of uh, type 2 diabetes is the environment. It is this westernized lifestyle, the sedentariness, um, and the excess calories. So that is the biggest uh, uh, driver. But having said that, not everybody who is overweight or uh, ob uh, obese goes on to develop type 2 diabetes. So clearly other things are in at play. And if your beta cells, you know, if Boris is super beta, uh, super Boris, and is able to uh, produce enough insulin that uh, all the rest of the cells can do their job, then you can uh, get away with it if you like. Um, but uh, uh, I think I wouldn't want anyone to think that your genetics was uh, the most important component unless you have one of these rare forms, which is down to a single uh, gene mutation where that really is the major player. So, so it's the interesting stuff. You're studying a disease where most of it is environmental. Yeah. Or the increased frequency of it rather than being genetic in core. So is the interest in the genetics because it might unlock those individuals who you think are maybe environmentally have diabetes, have diabetes, have diabetes, have diabetes, have diabetes, have diabetes. Okay. Given that it's maybe an environmental yeah. disease. So it's an environmental disease, and we have had public health messages for uh, a very long time encouraging people to eat less and exercise more. That doesn't work. People are continuing to put on weight, to eat the wrong thing, not to exercise and to develop diabetes. At the moment, everything that we're using to try and treat it is uh, not correcting the disease. It is only uh, allowing people to manage their blood glucose levels. We can't make new drugs because we have a really poor understanding of what's going on. I'm having to use fluffy toys here to explain to you what's going on in our bodies, what causes diabetes. We need to understand what the defects are. Human genetics is a tool, a window, an opportunity to see where the machinery is broken. And it might take us to places that we didn't know about in terms of the biology. And that gives us the opportunity then to target those with uh, small molecules, with uh, peptides, and with other drugs that we might be able to use uh, to improve how that machinery operates. So I see it as a, as a way of getting at the underlying biology. A lot of the defects that we identify are really, really small, and they don't have a massive impact on how something uh, uh, operates, but they tell you about the biology. Does that make a bit more yeah, sense? Yeah. Yeah. I have a question, actually. Okay. So did anybody use these obese people that do not develop any type 2 diabetes to actually do, I don't know, a massive screening in their DNA and find what are the cool stuff that they have and the normal people that develop diabetes don't? Yes. It's a great, great question, and yes, people have. There's a lot of interest in um, what have been termed in the press as the metabolically healthy obese. So uh, they have done the same kind of experiments that we've done in people with and without diabetes, where you look for these differences in the DNA that are more common in one population than the other. And they have been doing that, looking for things that protect people. Because clearly that could also be very insightful in pointing uh, targets that you might mm -hmm. be able to go after mm -hmm. therapeutically. Yes, yeah, so people are doing that. Hasn't 
provided anything uh, so far that has mm -hmm. been followed up, but people are doing it because it would be another another way. Yeah, just a question on that follow-up question. Um, so the metabolic, metabolically, yes, yep. sorry, um, healthy obese. Um, I'm assuming that they're kind of measured at a, a cross-sectional level. Everything. Have they followed them up and see if they got any, uh, maybe five or ten years risk of developing diabetes in those people, or have they always been healthy as a you know, being obese and healthy for the ne next 10 years or were they diagnosed with diabetes? No, that's a really that's a really good question, and um, it's it's true. Many studies that uh, are done are that sort of snapshot, just what happens at that moment in time. But there are also lots of studies around the world now where cohorts have been uh, followed up for maybe 10, 20 years. So in some of those instances, they can check whether somebody has uh, been obese for a long period of time and has managed to keep their, you know, their triglycerides, their blood sugar levels in, in, an, uh, in a healthy range, yes. So, but those studies are very expensive to do and yeah. there are uh, 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 smaller numbers of them, but they do exist and where possible people work with those. Sorry, another question. Yes. I'm a huge supporter of personalised medicine, but I was just wondering for, you know, medicines that are targeting, um, you know, genetic medicines, um, there, has there been a lot of studies done in terms of looking at drug-drug interactions? Um, because I'm assuming that people with diabetes, they normally would have a lot of comorbidities and they're probably taking other types of medicine. And, you know, in clinical practices, a lot of interests are in drug-drug interactions. And so I'm just wondering, you know, if there's I can't give you a definitive answer on that, but I would say that when people follow up uh, new agents um, or when people are looking at, say, what we call a pharmacogenetic effect, where perhaps you ask whether there's a change in, a, in, a, in your DNA that might make you respond better to a drug than another, people do look at what the other variables might be, where those are recorded. And again, it's, it's a bit like what I was saying with the cohorts. It's, a, it's only as good as the material you've got to work with. And there are cohorts out there where they have excellent health healthcare records and you can have whole prescribing history mm. and you can be able to um, get all of that information and then there are others where perhaps it's lacking um, so it depends on the quality of, of the study but people do look at that uh, when they're looking for how well a, a drug performs. Um, how much can you reverse the like problems with diabetes by changing your lifestyle? So I know you can sometimes be diagnosed with diabetes that's an excellent question. So um, you can make a huge difference by making changes to your lifestyle, by losing weight and by exercising. And one of the ways that people uh, are diagnosed with diabetes is doing something called an oral glucose tolerance test. And what, this, what happens in one of these tests is that you go in having not had anything to eat uh, overnight, so you've gone in what's called the fasting state, and then they give you um, a horrible drink full of 75 grams of uh, glucose, which you have to drink, and then they measure your blood glucose level over a two-hour period, and they diagnose your diabetes based on what your readings are through that two-hour uh, window. The trouble with that test is that it has a huge degree of inaccuracy. There's a lot of variability. Uh, the CV, coefficient of variation, is around 25%. So you can get different results on different days. It's, it's just 
one of the natures of that particular uh, test. So you can go in and be, come back positive one day uh, and, and not on another just because of variability in the test, which is why you would always look at that in conjunction with other tests that would be performed uh, by your uh, GP. So that's about variability in the test. The second thing is can you change it with your lifestyle? Absolutely. And then there's some beautiful work that's coming out of Newcastle at the moment from somebody called Roy Taylor. And Roy's been uh, advocating uh, these very uh, strict diets with people rapidly losing uh, weight through their diet and being able to cure their diabetes. So this is being done now in uh, work funded by Diabetes UK so that they can do this in large numbers of individuals and to show that clinically uh, this has a meaningful uh, impact. Yeah, can I just add to yeah. that? And another example of, of, of that is, um, are you aware of bariatric surgery? So th there are some remarkable uh, uh, results there where people go in, they have uh, these uh, drastic surgical procedures that limit the um, amount of calories that they're able to uh, comfortably manage because their stomachs have been made smaller. And within a very short space of time, their diabetes can, and blood sugar levels can return uh, to normal. So you can see here that you can make differences um, um, uh, to people's uh, blood sugar levels by making interventions either through lifestyle or through surgery. Yes. Yeah. It's it. So type two diabetes is kind of the di uh, the diagnosis of exclusion. It's kind of it's it's not it's not one disorder. It's we we if you think about it, it's it, it's labelled based on your uh, blood glucose level, your sugar level in your blood. But it, there are lots of different causes, lots of different varieties, but they all get called the same thing. So I, I look at it as a spectrum. You'll have some people that might have a mixture of type 1 and type 2 diabetes because they happen to have been uh, inherited risk factors for both. And in those instances, they may have destroyed some of their beta cells. They may have lost some of them, so they may have reduced uh, beta cell mass. So I think you have a continuum. Uh, and how you intervene in those instances will have different outcomes. I have another question. <laughs> Sorry, there is a like a dose response curve mm -hmm. or amount of sugar that you are eating constantly, mm -hmm. and then the probability to get diabetes. It's a really personal question because I am eating chocolate all the time for <laughs> my PhD. So <laughs> that's what I'm always saying that I will become diabetic, but maybe not if I eat chocolate all, every day. Not every day. Okay. <laughs> I can't possibly comment on whether or not. <laughs> Or on, or on the rights or wrongs of uh, chocolate. I mean, I think when any student that's writing up, there are all sorts of practices that, <laughs> that happen, uh, caffeine consumption, uh, lack of sleep, that are, are probably not sustainable in the long term. But, uh, yeah, eating, eating chocolate every day, um, proba probably not. Everything little and in moderation, lots of things. <laughs> Nothing is bad, just in moderation. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Any other questions? Uh, <laughs> yeah.
PhD students down there. I think the, the sugar is partly related to um, energy expenditure because remember if you don't burn off that chocolate okay, either nervous energy because you're working without but if you don't burn it off your body's got to store it somewhere and it then depends where your body stores it what impact that's likely to have on your, uh, your health so we put on fat differently so some people will put on their fat down here uh, around their hips the jolo look that is metabolically quite protective, and it's, uh, it's, if you like, a safe place to put it. If you put it on here, that's not so great. Here it indicates that it's most likely around your organs. So you may have it in your fatty liver, you may have it around your pancreas, and that's not a very safe place to have stored that excess fat. So I think it's about how much you put in, how much you burn off, not necessarily about whether you uh, eat your chocolate three times a day or you have a complete okay. nutter binge. I don't think that there's uh, compelling evidence that would, that would direct me. I would just look at my total amount of chocolate over that period. Of, uh, I love the fact that we've all come back down to chocolate. <laughs> it's a commodity we can all relate to. Just one question. Everyone keeps going on about how diabetes is all about sugar, but isn't it also about fat? Because people often tell you, right, oh, if you eat pizza, it's okay because it doesn't have a lot of sugar, but it's also about fat because fat is as bad as sugar and fat raises the blood sugar levels just four hours later rather than at that very moment. So I think a lot of the time people are miseducated thinking that, oh, it's all about sugar, but I think it's a bit of both because fat can do the same thing just four hours later and people don't realize how threatening that is actually. No, I, I, I would not argue with that uh, with you on that. I think that actually uh, a little bit of, of when, how old you are uh, depend, uh, determines whether or not you think fat is the baddie or sugar is the baddie. So for many years, fat was marked out. You, you want to have low-fat everything. So they take the fat out of everything and, and they put the, and put the sugar in. And I think we've become a little blind to the amount of sugar in, in foods, whereas we've actually been very sensitized to how much fat is in foods. So my argument would be it's about the total uh, calorific intake, it's how much you have and how much you then use up. But I think the sugar is tends to be more hidden than the fat, fat-free, right? Yeah, I think yeah. that is true, but then I think that is sort of given a false advertising because now people are completely forgotten about fat. They'll eat a low-fat muffin and then they'll be like, oh, but it's all good, or they'll eat a muffin and forget that the fat is still there. No, I, I, I think you, you, you probably have a point and we'll have a, a cycle. Perhaps at some point it'll come back to having unprocessed foods, uh, unrefined sugars, and to, uh, to eating uh, uh, healthy uh, in general. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? I just wanted to say, we talk about fairly, we talk about sugar, but isn't, isn't the carbohydrate intake just as much a problem? It's too little sugars. 
Yeah, I mean, it's quantity again. It comes down to how much you put in. You need it's it's a balance, right? Um, but I think if you eat carbohydrate as a fuel, uh, as a fuel, you tend to get full. You don't tend to binge on that in the same way. Um, think about that uh, uh, diet, uh, the diet coke. You can see what, what I drink. Think about the, the, the coke and think about the sugar that's in that. If you have that with your with your food on top of everything else, um, it's total, right? Well, I think we don't have any more personal and not personal questions. So thank you so much. You're welcome. It was a really fun talk. I'm going to check my glucose. Because <laughs> I can. Okay. 6.1. Pretty stable, I would say. Yeah, pretty stable, pretty stable. <laughs> so thank you so much. I'll meet you guys to a round of applause. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can find more details about all our events at our website, www.oxfordcyber.com. Also, please follow us on Twitter, at Oxford Cyber, and like us on Facebook, where you can find us at British Science Association Oxford Branch Group. See you soon!